Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. In Christian tradition, one of the most solemn days of the church year is Ash Wednesday, when believers enter a season of preparation for Easter by confronting their own mortality. That this season lasts 40 days is no mistake. Those who follow Jesus are meant to follow him into the wilderness, where they too may be tested. Episcopal priest Barbara Brown Taylor is in church on the other side of the pulpit. For me, she writes, the peak of the service comes when the priest invites the congregation forward to the altar rail to receive ashes on our foreheads. Those of us who have done it know that we are being invited to our own funerals. Kneeling shoulder to shoulder at the rail, we wait our turn, hearing the priest say to others what will soon be said to us, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return, the priest says, making the sign of the cross on my forehead. Because she has just dipped her thumb in the cup of ashes, I get the full dose. I get the sudden urgent ask ask for more, more, for a whole bowl, a bowl of ashes on my head. But it is not yet turn, my turn, for a whole bowl. For now, all I get is a taste of death, while there is still time to say please and thank you to the giver of all life. In her new book, An Altar in the World, A Geography of Faith, Barbara Brown Taylor shares a beautiful reflection on the power of uncharted wilderness sojourns, those real or metaphorical 40 days of wandering in every way lost. Popular religion focuses so hard on spiritual success, she writes, that most of us do not know the first thing about the spiritual fruits of failure. When we fall ill, lose our jobs, wreck our marriages, alienate our children, you can fill in the blank here if you can stand it, most of us find it hard to shake the shame of getting lost in our lives. And yet if someone asked us to point to the times in our lives that changed us for the better, a lot of those times would be wilderness times. When the safety net has split, she continues, when the resources are gone, when the way ahead is not clear, the sudden exposure can be both frightening and revealing. We spend so much of our time protecting ourselves from this exposure that a weird kind of relief can result when we fail. To lie flat on the ground with the breath knocked out of you is to find a solid resting place. This is as low as you can go. You told yourself you would die if it ever came to this, but here you are. You cannot help yourself, and yet you live.
I have not set out to depress you this morning. Far from it. But it feels important to speak these truths here in this beloved community and especially to say this. These tastes of death, whether we literally choose the ashes or not, have much to say to life. The word Lent comes from a Germanic word for springtime. Traditionally, during the season of Lent, Christians choose to give up something, a kind of spiritual spring cleaning that includes spiritual disciplines for transformation. Eastern Christians call this transformational process theosis, which St. Athenaeus described as becoming by grace what God is by nature. It sounds wonderful until you get to the fine print. The purpose of Lent is to be a season of fasting, self-denial, penitence, and conversion. Last Sunday evening, I asked a Roman Catholic friend how she was observing Lent. I've given up meat, she answered, and I'm trying not to be so mean. Oh, dear. <laughs> I wondered what a Unitarian Universalist version might look like. How about, I'm eating a vegetarian diet and I'm trying to be kind? What if instead of giving up or denying something, we took on something new? What if we gave up misery for Lent? In the mid-1980s, as the AIDS epidemic raged in Provincetown, I conducted so many memorial services that I would climb into the pulpit with only the eulogy in hand. I knew the entire order of service and every word of the service, every possible invocation, reading, prayer, hymn, and benediction by heart. At the height of that merciless rampage, an entire pew of apparently healthy young men died in a single three-week period. It felt like years and years of Lent with no Easter. One Sunday, as Rogers Baker, the church treasurer, was facing the end of his life, his partner, Preston Babbitt, chair of the church board and also sick with the virus, shared with the congregation that like any family, they had had dreams. Now he told us those dreams were being relinquished or, when possible, downsized. They were holding on to what they could and letting go of what they had to. Above all, he said, they didn't want to be reduced to misery. Being sad all the time was not how they wanted to live before they said goodbye. At that moment, something deep in me shifted. I realized that as a congregation, as a spiritual community, we had to get out of emergency room mode, rise above triage mode, and shift into a perspective that embraced this as the new normal, this. All these terrible deaths, yes, but also life, life. Somehow Preston Babbitt had given us a directive echoing the injunction of Moses to the people of Israel, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, 
choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. From that time forward, with each new loss, we grieved and we celebrated, seizing the opportunity to give thanks for the life that was still in us. Memorial services were always followed by huge feasts, storytelling, music, dancing. We partied with the smallest excuse at the least provocation. Barbara Brown Taylor speaks of the choices proffered by these wilderness times. She writes, I have lived through parts of life that no one in their right mind would ever willingly have chosen, finding enough overlooked treasure in them to outweigh my projected wages in the life I had planned. These are just a few of the reasons that I've decided to stop fighting the prospect of getting lost and engage it instead as a spiritual practice. The practice of getting lost is both valuable and undervalued in this society, she continues. Here, the point is to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible, even if that means we missed most of the territory. Sometimes this is because we are doing at least five other things while in transit, including listening to the radio, talking on the phone, eating the meal we missed, drinking a coffee, or if on your, you're on the East or West Coast, a latte, checking our text messages or email, but only at red lights, and, my personal favorite, admiring ourselves in the rearview mirror, checking out how good we look in our new sunglasses. <laughs> the practice of getting lost has nothing to do with wanting to go there. It is something that happens, like it or not. You lose your job. You lose your home. Your friends avoid you. Your lover leaves. At this level, the advanced practice of getting lost consists of consenting to be lost since you have no other choice. The consenting itself becomes your choice as you explore the possibility that life is for you and not against you in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. And then she throws down the gauntlet for the highest level of the spiritual practice of lostness. The point, she says, is to give up on the sufficiency of your own resources. The point is to admit that you are lost and maybe, here comes the kicker, maybe even allow that you are in no hurry to be found. Where does the wilderness, those desert days of Lent, what do they have to teach us? Barbara Brown Taylor commends to us the practice of a flaneur. A flaneur is a person who goes for a walk with no particular destination in mind, willing to go wherever the wind blows. They saunter, they stroll. They are more curious than panicked, more interested than horrified, throwing their weight to the side of attention and engagement and hope, taking a good look around to see where they are and what this unexpected development might have to offer. I think of my friend Benji, who came home from a sojourn in Asia following his senior year in high school. With no job prospects for the summer ahead, he met me in Provincetown. I invited him to dinner, and long story short, he ended up at a table with a gaggle of older lesbians. Benji was unfazed. I asked him, Benj, what's the most important thing you learned from your travels? 
Smiling, he didn't hesitate, never refuse an invitation. Singer, songwriter, and recording artist Holly Near was also at our table. She loved his spirit. At the time, her record company, Redwood Records, was operating out of Oakland, California. Benji, she said, do you want to come work for me? Sure, he said. Never refuse an invitation. One last pearl from Barbara Brown Taylor. She suggests that for our wandering to be fruitful, we have to be willing to recognize God as if God were in our neighbor. Once she writes, when I took the wrong train to the New York Botanical Gardens and ended up walking through a pretty scary neighborhood in the Bronx, a bus driver stopped and opened his doors just for me. I don't have the right change, I said, my eyes huge with fear. Get in, he said. God drove a bus in the Bronx that day. My spiritual companions, welcome to Lent. Welcome to the wilderness, the taste of death, and the promise of spring. Welcome to the preparation, the giving up and taking on. Let us give up misery and take on an openness to the gifts that even the most perilous road may proffer. May we remember to say both please and thank you. Please to be touched and changed. Please to choose well. And thank you for the chance to ride this bus together. <laughs>